Well, thank you so much, Chris, for, for joining us today uh, from Singapore. I was fascinated about what you and your, your team are, are, are doing and building with What If Foods. So let's kind of start a little bit with, with your journey and, and talk about how your career within you know, the food industry and food area sort of really matured into, into starting What If Foods and, and kind of take us through that sort of moment where you decided to, to, to start your venture. First of all, before I go into answering this uh, this question, which probably takes a whole hour to, yeah. to, to do, before I, before I do so, thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to speak to you, to speak to people that are hopefully listening and find it uh, interesting, maybe a little bit fascinating. Um, I hope we can engage uh, with your community. That would be fantastic, lovely. How this all started, it started really way back then in my childhood. I grew up about 15 kilometers north of Salzburg in the countryside uh, as, a, as a farmer's boy essentially uh, we had this perfect supply chain in place where uh, we basically way back then before the, the term regenerative agriculture was really known or used let alone in the german-speaking uh, part of the world uh, but we had it uh, we had uh, we had as much livestock as our land could support uh, we produced dairy we made a little bit of butter we had our pigs we made sausages and we had this massive restaurant that was basically the community Place, um, particularly Sundays after church, people come together and have their beer and have their uh, wise wish and so on and so forth. So this is how I grew up. And therefore, food and agriculture probably is in my DNA right from the get-go, right off the bat, uh, is when, when, when I got really fascinated with it. I then decided to basically study a little bit of agriculture, did food science, later on an MBA in finance and in marketing. Uh, but my journey, my, my professional journey, took me from you know working from big names in the industry right through to entrepreneurs in really, really challenging environments. To become ultimately an entrepreneur, the first big venture that I pulled off was in India, uh, where my wife and I decided to go in the country and make an impact, go in the, and, and, and create something that is lasting, that is sustaining for many, many lives, you know, to have meaningful jobs and lift them out uh, of whatever they have done before, create this vacuum so that they can have actually a fulfilled and meaningful life has always been um, uh, one of the key drivers for my wife and myself. And we did that in India. And today it is India's largest seasoning company. Uh, as an entrepreneur, I've exited from it in 2012. Uh, I'm looking back today with um, uh, such a joyful smile on my face <laughs> uh, because the, the, there are so many memories. Uh, we have gone through the startup roller coaster through 2007, 8, 9, the financial crisis, really our backs at the wall, not knowing anymore what to do next month and how to finance the organization because of all of these issues that the capital markets really experienced. And us being a, a startup company, forget retain profits. We never made them before. So <laughs> <laughs> it was really, really challenging. It was challenging. I remember there was this uh, there was this time where my wife and I looked at our accounts and we basically said there's not enough uh, money anymore to fly back to Europe. So we have to make it work. <laughs> so let's plow through this. You know, so that was uh, I was really uh, today. I look back and it's like this is uh, it's an unmatched experience. So anyway, I've exited from the business and uh, and um, I got going trying to trying to say you know there's so much broken in the food industry, the agricultural industry as well as the agro food industry. There's so much that they, that is actually producing the wrong results. Mm. And, and I said, there must be a better way of doing it. Because at the end of the day, we always say in the industry, right, the system is broken. Essentially, the system is not broken. The system is very, very efficient. 
-hmm. It just produces the wrong results because we are measuring the wrong KPIs in the industry. Uh, and therefore, uh, we have produced whatever we have produced. You know, this model that, it, that we are, uh, that's out there today is essentially designed for a post-World War II generation, mm -hmm. producing quantity uh, per hectare, let alone quality. doesn't really matter. Whatever is there, it's just, you know, feed empty stomachs. And we have carried on perfecting the system to such a high extent that we are feeding globally our population 75% of all food with 12 crops and five animals. I mean, this cannot be healthy. We cannot expect mm. a healthy outcome if we are, if we do produce food on that and that level, right? It's just, it's just not possible. Evolution didn't give us enough, sorry, the time it took us to get there, evolution uh, not give enough time to adopt to these circumstances. We are, we are creatures that strive usually on 300 different uh, plants and, uh, and, and, and other things that we eat and that we need in order to be, to be full of life and to be healthy and, uh, you know, and, and be alert as well. You know, if you look at what's happening since COVID with all these mental diseases that creep into mm -hmm. our societies it's because of the mental alertness is not there anymore you know and, and so many other reasons but anyway so all of that really really fascinated me and um and i i'm i'm for once a person that says you know, pointing at the finger at others uh, is easy to do i just don't want to go i don't want to leave this planet once to say uh, you haven't had a good go about it trying to make something much better hence we have created what if foods so what if foods if I straight away go into it, if you're okay with it, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll explain a little bit about uh, yes. what if foods then. So what if foods is also an evolution of uh, several different things that we have done. So we started off as a, as a tech and science incubator, but as we actually moved into more and more understanding as to where the supply chains are, what the problems are in terms of sustainability, where the carbon sinks are, where, how to stop deforestation, how to actually control water uh, footprints, you know, because the intensive agriculture. So for example, irrigation to me is just slowing down a fundamental issue. It is just not resolving it because the water tables keep on falling further down, right? So we have been investigating a lot uh, since we got accepted and uh, ultimately we became Body Foods. And I think the essence of it all is that Body Foods is based on the notion, the narrative of gentleman and prof John Elkington, who is the, who coined the triple bottom line and he's basically the inventor of people, planet, profit as, an, as, a, as a sustainability tool uh, that can be used in the industry. But in 2018, he came famously out in a Harvard Business Review article to uh, recall his sustainability tool to basically say, I don't want to stand for it anymore because it, it produces the wrong results. Hmm. So it is not what if foods that says that sustainability in its, in its form that we, have, uh, that we have talked about it for, for probably 20 years now or 30 years, uh, it's just not good enough. It is not our language that we speak alone. It is also even even that gentleman who has coined it to start with says that what we do today is um, it's just not good enough anymore. And then you could go you could go back and say, what did Einstein say? How did he divine insanity? Doing the same things over mm -hmm. and over again, but expecting different results is insanity. Mm -hmm. Isn't that what we are trying to do with sustainability? So it's insane in a way. <laughs> so we paused here and we basically said, so the system per se has over the, uh, over the decades uh, produced many, many empty calories. Therefore, people have become 
overweight, obese, have chronic diseases, heart attacks, strokes, colon cancers, the entire digestive system is just utterly out of balance. Modern nutrition per se, do we really understand the biomes and how they interact with us? We don't, it's just be a, not even scratching the surface of that amazing uh, ecosystem that we have in our digestive tract. So this all got us fascinated about things. And, uh, and we basically said, so the industrial agriculture and food industry is leaving empty lands behind because there's so much deforestation going on. There's so much desertification going on and degradation going on. There are empty villages because people who were growing food on these lands before, they don't have an income anymore. And we've just left them behind, abandoned it. So there's um, millions being set in motion to, tr to try to find work elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Climate change refugees, OECD has said 130, 140 million people are going to be set in motion. All of that is quite worrisome, right? Especially the fact that if we want to stop deforestation in Southeast Asia, for example, Kalimantan, Sulawesi, Papua New Guinea for palm oil, or in the mm -hmm. Amazon region for soy, if you want to stop that, we need to start producing food on the land that intensive agriculture has left behind. Mm. Um, and that land has it has a challenge. It was probably it was probably used for monoculturing. It is emptied out. It doesn't have any more life in it. You know the life in the the microbiomes have gone and so on and so forth. It's deserted. It's empty. And I can throw a, a few data points in here. Yeah. For one, you know we have about two point seven billion people that derive their income directly from agricultural activities on that planet. Mm -hmm. More than 75% of them are the poorest of the poor. And exactly those are faced with about 53% of their land being degraded, meaning that they don't derive an income any, uh, from it anymore. Mm. So if you are ahead of a family and you have two acres or say three acres, and more than half of it doesn't produce income for you anymore, what the heck are you going to do? Right. You need to fall back to those crops that you can actually sell into a market because there are no markets for crops that you can so this is a vicious cycle that drives us really, really downhill. So what we are basically saying is we need to we need to find alternative crops. We need to make them appealing to consumer masses, create the demand so that you can connect back with these communities to grow food on these land that can be rehabilitated. It can be regenerated. It is a matter of trying to identify that new and supply chain that is not linear and not driven by speculation and not driven by, by let me say, Wall Street. It is driven by mm -hmm. a circular economy. I'm doing today, I reach out to communities for them to grow for the next season, a particular supply for me, and then I'm bringing it forward and make it appealing and hopefully sexy for consumers to hop on a trend. Right. And that is what foods is really all about is this holistic thinking about regeneration because sustainability is not enough we need to start restoring else mm. future generations have a very very difficult time i think there's there's so much to to talk about with all the aspects of i think the industry is so massive like you said it's it employs a lot of people billions of people right there's it's a trillion you know dollar industry where you look at some of the economic variables of it and then it, it's where do you start with something that big right where do you start at a base level to make it better, right? Because like you said, it, the system itself is very, you know, efficient. I mean, a lot of the world gets fed. I think a few years ago, I read a statistic that more people died from obesity than from starvation. So it, it's not the lack of amount of food. It's the distribution of food. And then it's the quality and the, and the, and the health of the food that is being put at scale to the world. So I guess, where can we start as, you know, consumers, I always think is, is such a powerful 
entity. We have so much power that we can change a lot of these things that we want to change. But a lot of the times, you know, the food that's really bad for us is the cheapest, <laughs> right? And, you know, you go to a grocery store and that, that's people look at economic cost on, on food, which is a little weird because it's their health, right? It's not just food. It's what's the cost of your health, right? Like you said, that we have all these chronic illnesses and diseases that come from eating really bad food for decades. I say that to say what, whether it's from a, a business side, right, the industry, what is the industry doing? Are, are they making positive moves to better ingredients overall? As a food scientist, what, what has been the issue for, I guess, your career that you saw? How could we make it more manageable and, and make industry create better food for, for the masses? Is it even possible, I guess? I am a firm believer that it's absolutely possible as long as we can mobilize the consumers to be on a journey with us. Yeah. Um, I'm an optimist by, by, I'm born an optimist. So it is always difficult to see that the, the downside and the risk in things that I'm doing for me. But let me explain a little bit why I think it is doable. For one, we are experiencing a pivotal moment in history. Our societies are polarized. They have rivaling ideas. And that is always an indication for something is going on. There are ideas that really, really rattle uh, the cage, so to speak. And I think what COVID-19 has done, uh, locking many of us in our homes, has escalated our thinking as consumers as well as as regulators. Because we saw that in the, in the good old days, we do not eat uh, five burgers a day and two liters of cola full of sugar. It mm -hmm. doesn't influence your health tomorrow. Mm -hmm. uh, it accumulates on your ribs. It makes you more overweight and obese. And uh, you pay the price in, say, 10, 20 or 30 years down, down the line. So today, I don't care. But what COVID-19 has done is that it brought it straight into our face. Mm -hmm. uh, the time to harm has been shortened so much that consumers are really, really waking up. Look, today in, 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 in Singapore, if I go out and I'm on my cycle and I cycle around, you see people that you haven't seen exercising before very obvious their body right. structure doesn't indicate that there have been regular exercises before which is a good thing because they are starting to think about what what they are putting into their bodies they start thinking about hey okay i can't do this seven days a week 24 hours mm -hmm. but i can do it two times three times a, 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 a week and so on and so forth so this this notion this narrative is coming in secondly i think that the regulators are really waking up to say hey hang on a second Yes, we are perfectly aware that in Brussels, for example, there are 30,000 lobbyists, if I'm not mistaken, mm. and they all whisper their philosophy and their reality into our ears. We know it exists, but hang on a second. What did COVID-19 show us? It showed us that the mortality rate on overweight people is, uh, is much higher than on healthy people, right? So it really showed that if we don't manage the, uh, the health of our community, the healthcare systems will have an unbearable load in decades to come. And I think regulators are waking up to that fact and say, hey, we need to act here now. Otherwise, we have we are leaving a system behind that probably next generations can't afford anymore. So I think there is change going to take place. And noticeably, I don't know whether or not you're aware, but the European Union, the parliament of the European Union has rejected the notion uh, of not allowing plant-based milks to be called milk, which is a fantastic move. If I would have been in this, uh, in this podcast with you 10 years ago, I would have said, no chance. The milk lobby, the dairy lobby is so huge, it's so powerful, they will just uh, push this through. 
but it didn't because the regulators are waking up. So hang on a second. I think, you know, in, maybe in a, in a couple of years, we see negative labeling coming onto the food that, that people must be aware of. And probably you have on your crisps a non-functioning heart being displayed because it mm. causes high blood pressures and what have you. It, 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 I would not be surprised if it comes. So I think there is this notion of regulators are bringing about a new framework of thinking. And I think this the the consumers are aware of, we have to do things differently. Now, you've asked me about where to start and what can mm-hmm. others do differently. I don't want to talk too much about others because I don't want to go on a rant. Sure. Um, but what I want to talk about is to really to really kind of highlight as to what our philosophy is and, and how what the foods is going about it. So what we have done is essentially we basically said, what are regenerative crops that can grow on these challenged lands? Where are these communities that need helping hand with new income on these degraded arable lands? And can we find regenerative crops that are complete uh, in their own right and capacity versus being there to be refined for ingredients, which is a totally different stream of thinking. And that's our filter that we apply over these regenerative crops. And then a whole stream of science starts. Our technology starts to work and get, in, get engaged in. And, and then we reach out to farming communities, predominantly in West Africa, as well as in Southeast Asia, and say, hey, folks, there is, for example, a legume that is called Dipabara groundnut. We know you grow it. Hey, if you grow it for that sort of quality, we would be an off-taker for you. Can you actually engage with us? And they say, of course we can, because nobody else buys that from you, from us, but it grows on that land that otherwise doesn't give me an income. Mm-hmm. And because we do it as directly with these communities as we possibly can, we can compensate that meaningfully, meaning that we actually bring the money where it is needed and not having it somewhere in, in ivory towers and offices where bonuses are being paid. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a very, very important aspect of it, because one thing is to be to be able to go with a golden check, a million dollars as a CSR money in these communities and, and, and do something. But that is not sustainable, right? That doesn't build an economy from scratch mm-hmm. up. That doesn't generate a regenerative economy per se. But what we are trying to do is exactly that. We're basically doing a regenerative approach to that land and bring this economy about for them. And then we use science and technology to actually convert that either in instant noodles uh, or even in plant-based milk. And we do it in such a way that our customers, our consumers, must not adopt new cooking styles or have to go to special classes or have to buy another shaker or have to buy another whatever. What we're trying to do is we try to keep this convenience food as close to uh, as close to what's known out there so that the switch can become a very, very easy one. No adoption needed. But yet we are bringing these ingredients through these uh, regenerative crops into the diets of these consumers. Therefore, beef up the nutrient load in what otherwise is empty. Mm. And with the beefed up nutrient load, we make consumers essentially healthier because we replenish the nutrients that they need on an ongoing basis for their busy lives that they're living uh, for their challenged lives that they're living and this is the way we are thinking so we are using science and technology not for the sake of making a buck on an exit of uh, of, of of some sorts we're using science and technology to regenerate these crops bring them about make them meaningful again uh, and connect that into forms of food that are easy to consume for consumers so that the switch becomes a logical one and becomes an easy one. And we try to do that on a cost basis that allows us to become maybe the Tesla of the industry, to, to do it on such a level that it becomes affordable to many rather than elitist to few. Uh, because if you want to drive impact, one has to look at scale mm-hmm. uh, because only at scale uh, for once these crops that we are uh, that we are nurturing right now, they will stay. 
they become part of the system if at scale. If they become too small, they will be forgotten uh, if we don't go for it. And secondly, the more lives you can touch on both sides, on the origin side, meaning farming communities, on the consumer side, the better it is for all of us as an as humanity. And that's what we stand for. That's um, a fantastic journey that we're on. And uh, that philosophy is somewhere, uh, is something that we have started. So you asked me, where, where have we started? We have started by saying, and here comes the, 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 the capitalistic thinking through a bit, maybe. What we have said, is, what we have done is we have basically said, look, folks, is there really a need to deep fry instant noodles? There must be a better way of doing that because mm. deep frying instant noodles creates a demand on palm oil. Palm oil has all the devastation on the planet. Plus it is calorie, nothing else. It's just, just rich calories. Right. So if we take this step out and we innovate against that, then we don't deep fry it anymore. And we can actually use then the ingredients such as the Barbara groundnut in it in order to supplement the wheat flour with Barbara groundnut flour in order to make it nutrient dense. And that's the way we started because then you are within cost of goods manufactured of the industry and you don't have to seek out special markets with special high income streams. You can mm -hmm. actually go straight to market and, 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 and go for your retail retail base essentially and that's how we started science and technology is the enabler the impact is happening on consumers as well as on farming communities what does the technology part how does how is can that excel the is it the extraction of the nutrition is it does the science and technology part is that something that just hasn't been available before like it is now right like everything else i mean technology has invaded every part of every business sector in, in the world right and specifically for food we see obviously like plant-based exploding we see lab grown meat lab grown chicken lab grown everything right sort of exploding what has technology allowed us to do with food from from a positive point of view and, and are there negative aspects of it the way we have approached it is uh, commercially minded and striving for impact as soon as we possibly can in combination with thinking um, circular and regenerative. This plant-based movement that is out there is fantastic because it gets the consumers to have a conversation about something that is damn important. Reduce your meat intake, bring a better planet about, bring leave something better behind that you have found given from your forefather. So that is a fantastic step forward. However, it doesn't address the dire need of the planet to grow product right. on degraded arable land that the industry has left behind. Because if we don't do that, then these lands cannot become carbon sinks. Mm. So they are carbon emitting because we're not growing anything. Mm -hmm. So that is a huge aspect that the current plant-based movement is not addressing. The cell-based uh, movement to me, I don't want to say, to me, it's a little bit of a high-tech dream. Sure. Um, yes, they are making fantastic steps in the sub steps forwards. They're producing stuff uh, that is uh, that is that is a maybe affordable for, for somebody with, an, with a good income. But at the end of the day, they also have a media. Where does the media come from? We are, they're again going back to the same sort of raw materials that are currently in use. Right. So again, we are not addressing foundationally regenerative practices. These are these are these are not really tactical the problem at the root causes. They are meant to be, they're, they're, they're great steps in the right direction, but they are just not going far enough. And what we have done is, what we are trying to do at least, is we are taking each and every single category, category by category, and think the category through 
and say, where do we see a possibility to come in with science and technology to disrupt an aspect of it? It could be, as I said before, non-frying of instant noodles, or it could be a totally different approach to making a plant-based milk, leaving the good stuff in without refining it. Mm. And this is all this is all science and technology that probably is not as, as sexy to discuss as cell-based meats are, to be honest. Because of these 12 crops and five animals that produce more than 75% of all food that is being consumed, the factories that are out there everywhere in the world are so specialized mm. that even a change within a crop to a different sort of a raw material makes a haywire in the system of the factory. They can't, it, it can't run there for anymore. So you want to make sure that even one crop, say corn or wheat or whatever it might be, that hits the factory is within a narrow spec so that the, that the factory performs at its maximum peak. So to that extent, we have broad inefficiency. So let alone trying to bring in a different, different crop in such effect. It would just not work. It doesn't flow. So everything that we do is a heavy lifting from the bottom yeah. up, trying to, make, uh, trying to make this work with, uh, with those sort of aspects. So that's a big issue then, because this, the supply chain is not equipped for change from an ingredient standpoint, it sounds like, right? They're just so used to doing certain things a certain way that you almost have to build the the hardware <laughs> to, to a parallel right? you have to Correct. build the infrastructure to allow these new ingredients to be you know not only made at scale but also distributed at scale that's a very that's a very tough task right because you, you have to build essentially a foundation for a new era of you know healthy foods that's exactly it so for example i give you the example on of, of instant noodles we, we consume about 105 billion portions of instant noodles Hmm. 105 billion portions of instant noodles. And these are manufactured using about 2,000, 2,500 lines would be my rough estimate, okay? Production lines. Mm -hmm. Each of them, each such production line might be even 100 meter long. Now, just think about the capital that is invested in these lines. Mm -hmm. Massive. Look at these balance sheets of these companies. They see tremendous capital assets in the balance sheets. And if you want to actually change them to a new process, it would mean to knock off all this balance sheet, write it off in your PL. Yeah. yeah. So the CTO is going to say, Are you bloody crazy? Yeah. You cannot course. do that, right? So that's a tremendous challenge. Uh, for all of us. So reformulating, which is uh, a buzzword that I hear every now and then in the discussion in context of sustainability and healthier products, can only go so far. It can only go, you know, reformulating food without really touching all of these capital assets is, is just getting you so far. It's just one tiny step into a, into a direction, but it doesn't really help you foundationally. And here as a startup company, we don't have the legacy issue, right? Mm -hmm. We do not have a legacy brand that has to take care of all these assets, has to take care of a customer base that is so familiar with the product and what have you. We don't have that. We are a new kid on the block. We are offering something different. It's hard work at the beginning because you have to seek them out and find these consumers to partner, are willing to partner with you. Once, once, once they get once they get converted uh, they probably even are your best advocates out there in the market word of mouth uh, is probably our best recruitment agent right now in singapore um, and that makes me extremely happy back to the conversation that we have had right so reformulating and putting food on its head is is not as easy as it sounds mm -hmm. because you you're dealing with a super specialized industry out there another example i can give you disruptive technology for instant noodles is a technology piece that we have actually borrowed from toilet paper so what have toilet papers in common with instant noodles other than at some point in time, they meet, 
But other than that, they have nothing in common, right? <laughs> uh, but we have asked ourselves the question, so dehydrating a dough, instant noodles, taking water out, and taking the water out from paper pulp to make tissue paper and toilet paper is technologically a similar challenge. Mm. So if deep frying would be the holy grail to dehydrating water, toilet paper should be deep fried. But it isn't, of course. So how do they do it? And can we actually learn from that? And our technology today is a big, big part of that puzzle of our technology is a borrowing from the paper pulp industry. We have actually cross-pollinated that technology with our technology huh. and brought it to life in instant noodles. Interesting. Does that process, is it a similar process for the other type of food offerings? Or is that just the case for the instant noodles and then there's different technology that's used for the other, the other what-if products? So the answer is yes and no. Okay. The answer, the yes answer is that yes, we ha- we internally have a process that we call aspire, discover, translate, and size. Uh, that sort of is a process that basically starts off by visualizing how we can take a category and put it on its head. Mm-hmm. What is it that we can do knowing that we want to do regenerative agricultural practices? We want to reconnect with uh, farming communities. We want to have people consumers reconnect with what they eat. All of that is in the back of our mind. But then we ask ourselves the question, so if there are plant-based milks out there, how can we take that on and, and, and produce 3.0? What is it that they can do? How do we have to really think differently and not copy somebody else's product? So the reality is that the process is the same category by category, yet the disruption, the disruptive, disruptive technology that we devise is totally different from category to category. It really depends as to where we see an opportunity. It depends to see where, I mean, like, why do we deep fry? That simple question, why do we deep fry instant noodles? That simple question got got us going to say, hey, there is an opportunity here. If we don't do this anymore, we are not destroying any more nutrients because deep frying is so harsh on nutrients. And then we can put in this, uh, that sets in motion a entire new train of thoughts that then feeds into a project that, that then is being mulled over and worked on. Again, the process, the innovation process that we follow is the same, but where we disrupt technologically using our science base might be totally different. Mm-hmm. So we have a number of patents for our disruptive technologies and all of them are totally different. There's not a common aspect yeah. of it. What's, so we talked about noodles a little bit. What are some of the other industries or sectors within, within food that you feel are are ripe for dis- disruption. I think you talked about milk, you talked about noodles. Are those the two main areas that you're you're looking at? Because that is, you know, obviously so scalable across the world. Everybody sort of eats, you know, noodles and, and, and drinks milk. Is there is there something else that you would throw in that bucket that you guys are, are, are looking at? So we have started about a year ago, but we're launching our soups and shakes uh, as well mm-hmm. as our instant noodles. So the, the soups and shakes, they're not like uh, canned fresh soups. They are powdered, but they are essentially deriving from a similar philosophy, being plant protein rich and giving you all the nutrients that one needs. Easy to make, uh, easy to cook up and whatnot. So, But those are an extension from uh, an occasion where you can consume it from. So they are an extension from our instant noodles. So we went live with our instant noodles, soups and shakes. We're going live with our, with our plant-based milk. And thereafter, there's going to be a portfolio of products that comes out of, you know, of the first foundational process, call it the plant-based milk that we produce, which essentially is, um, is made in a total different way. It is, made, uh, it is made without losing a complete crop uh, in its own right. So meaning that we don't fractionate, we don't refine, we actually use the wholeness of the crop uh, that Mother Nature gives us. 
uh, and convert that into a fantastic nutrient dense product. So that is that is that is one that we do. As we then look probably into 2022 slash 2023, depending as to how how, how we are doing, uh, there's definitely a play on on plant based or on protein more protein based products. We are busy devising a technology that helps us differentiate uh, that sort of angle. I cannot go into more details sure, of sure. that because um, if I say protein-based, you know which direction yep. it goes. But again, we are thinking even today's plant-based proteins or plant-based burgers and stuff, we are thinking them through again and say, okay, that is generation two. Fantastic. Great. But right. what comes thereafter? What is right. it that we can do again? And, uh, and the process again repeats itself. And then there will be other categories coming along as well. The answer is there is a, we have set ourselves the mission to go into the food industry and rethink the making of these categories, category by category, always driven by regenerative crops and how we can bring them back alive and how we can make them palatable and easy to consume as convenient as possible for consumers to switch over. That is the mission that, that, that we are riding on essentially. And I hope it, get, it gets us to category by category by category by category as we move along. There's a long way to go. <laughs> what is, if you don't mind, from, just from an ignorance point of view, is like, what is plant-based milk? And, and, and even for the milk and, and noodle side after that is, what are some of the nutrients that we will get now from, you know, food and technology accelerating? What are some of the nutrients now that we can all expect to get versus, you know, 10, these past, you know, decades it being such lack of nutrients like what does that look like like what are exactly those sort of new nutrients that we would get that we, we haven't got before or maybe it's not new it's just more of them right packed in it's a super cool question that you ask a very difficult one to to answer but let me try to step back uh, and and talk a little bit about how i see the food industry and how it evolved over the last 150 years we have essentially reduced our intake to a very, very few raw materials. Mm -hmm. You know, the top three crops make more than 60% of all calories that are being consumed, okay? And, this, and the top big crops, they are essentially refined, split apart. Mm -hmm. Think about corn and how many fractions of corn there are and how these fractions find themselves into uh, the food industry or think about palm oil uh, palm oil is being fractionated into all individual molecules and then you find it in uh, personal hygiene products as well as in deep fried mm. products and and all over the place so we are we have developed an industry that essentially has refined for individual molecules or for very very narrow splits of molecules, very clusters of molecules, in order to be able to do what? To trade globally these products, to transport them and to store them uh, globally. So what does that mean? In earlier days, say 200 years ago, if you would have consumed palm oil, you would have had a dark red palm oil that has a very strong flavor in it. Now, palm oil today is colorless, odorless, mm. doesn't have anything anymore. There's no life in it anymore. So where has, where has this red stuff gone? Well, it's waste, it's animal feed. It's not in our food supply chain. Hmm. So the refining, of, the refining out of ingredients is a big part of us humans not delivering mm -hmm. a complexity of different nutrients into our microbiome. Just, just imagine just for a Real quick, that refining process means that it's also the process of 
essentially taking nutrients out of out of the product. Yes, it's essentially splitting a product for one particular nutrient alone. Gotcha. Okay, say for example, in palm oil, it's palmoline, which is one fatty acid. And you don't have the complexity anymore that otherwise palm oil will actually give our bodies, particularly our microbiomes, mm -hmm. to feed on. I just want to probably buzz your, your brain a little bit by saying, if you compare our ancestors' diet to how we eat today, they then, 10,000 years ago, they have fed on minimum 300 different species, be it plants, insects, be it fruits, vegetables, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth, 300 different ones. They then had a microbiome of more than 1,500 different species in, mm -hmm. their, in their bellies. Whereas we today feed ourselves 75% with 12 crops and five animals, where is, where is 17 versus 300. And then because of that narrowing down on so few ingredients, most of them are being refined, as I said before. The ancestors didn't refine them, but eating everything is actually yeah. <laughs> they had no, they had no, they had no interest in refining. <laughs> Just scrap that. It is not important. But we do, we refine. And then we bombard our microbiomes with just a few of these uh, molecules, a few of these fractions. And therefore, we have only about 50 in an average uh, left in our microbiomes. So the difference in terms of potential first metabolites is a seven Google, which is 10 to the power of 700. This is, this is such a complex world that we hardly understand. Just adding a few nutrients through fortification into a food, this, this, is, this is marketing. This is gimmick. Yep. This doesn't help us. This doesn't satisfy the complexity of it. What we are trying to do is the opposite. We're trying to actually go back and bring these crops back, bring more life into our food, bring more of these ingredients back into our systems and, uh, and therefore do good for, for our diets as well as for communities and the land it grows on. So just real quick on, on the palm oil example, that is sort of at, when we talk about scale, right? And now the you know, palm oil has been put into all kinds of things. But to, in order to do that, you destroy a ton of land, you know, at scale. And now when you sort of extracted, you know, all the palm oil from this one area, the industry will just move on and leave those farmers and those families now with land that has been destroyed. And, you know, they, their, lack, their lack of income is, is now gone. Now they have to, to migrate or even worse there, they, they sort of just, you know, slowly sort of, you know, you know disappear just because they don't have any form of income and, and health to roads and, and, and all those things. And so, you know, what if tries to come in and say, hey, this destruction of land that was done, we think we can come back in here now and sort of grow something that is, is different, but then is, is much more sustainable over time. Is that, is that sort of one just tiny? That's exactly what it is. That's, it, that's exactly what it is. Um, and we have proven it. What used to be a question mark, what if we can come in, right. is today a reality. We say, we are in. What if we can do it that way? You know, is today uh, we have proven it. So basically, in, in the humble way that we are, we are still small. So I don't want to portray here a picture sure. that we are a super big company. We are still small. But with our, uh, in our humble beginning that we have today, we have proven it that it's possible to energize farming communities to work with us on these land that has been left behind. That is not anymore commercially viable to put in place for the crop it hosted before and therefore it's left behind and these communities desperate need a helping hand to bring their farming practices back to where they were for example 
not far away from Singapore in Ajay. This is North Sumatra, uh, just down here. There is a, an area where it was badly hit by a tsunami. Uh, and these communities there uh, have now experienced three generations worth of palm oil processing, their palm oil farming uh, plantations. And what is happening now is that they have even forgotten how to grow their own onions and garlic. So the mm -hmm. poorest of the poor are importing even this sort of staple ingredients for the daily mm. cooking from Jakarta, uh, which is, hey, you have the land. It's just, why don't you grow it? Oh, because we don't know anymore how to do it. Because mm. we have, our ancestors have handed it over and it got lost. You know, if it is not being done by one generation, it gets lost. And that's what we're experiencing in, in many, many communities around the world, is that these practices get lost. This ancient wisdom gets lost. This connection with the ground gets lost. And that is sad to see it, it all go, you know, because at the end of the day, what they then know is going into the forest, cutting trees down, make more of palm oil to sell it to the market again. Right. So therefore, for, for them to have a, a meaningful income, for a better livelihood, we need to bring an alternative crop to their land. And that's what we're trying to do. That's what we're doing. Interesting. And, and, and would you go essentially like uh, look at the land? Because I guess, again, a little ignorance here, but you know, some places you can't grow certain things and some places you can't grow certain things. So when you, like, how do you find these lands, right? Whether it's Brazil or South America or Africa, like how do you find these lands that have been degraded or sort of left behind and, and go in and, and then assess and say, okay, I think we should grow this here, right? Because this has a, a long lifespan of doing this. Like, and do you real quick, like about the process of, of finding locations and then actually figuring out what to grow there? Unfortunately, that is not very hard because more than 50% so of yeah. 53% of land that is in agriculture lose use is being degraded. And this is not wow. Chris saying it. Right. You just go to the SDGs, SDG 15 life on land, talks about degradation and, def, um, and desertification, talks clearly about 53% of all farming land is being degraded. Wow. So literally you just walk outside of your sure. house, of your, sure. of your door, and you see it. Probably the location where you are in right now, Amsterdam, uh, you will not see it. Uh, but otherwise, you will see it. The location that we are in, Singapore, makes us, of course, look uh, beyond Singapore's borders particularly south and north of us, which is Malaysia north and the south of being um, Indonesia. And here we have land that is just um, former palm land or former mm -hmm. tobacco land, for example, or brisk land that is just not, um, not attractive for cash crops as well as commodity crops. Mm -hmm. So finding the land is literally no challenge. To be honest with you, if you are in that industry, like a few of my colleagues and I are together, we probably have, I don't know, probably 60, 70, 80 years of experience in that industry combined. We have worked with smallholder farming communities before we got started on this. Uh, it is not a big challenge to find the land. Neither is the big challenge, therefore, to find the communities. Because frankly, if you are a farmer, and you have just a few hectares of land, you want to produce stuff on your, on your farm. You just don't want to see it go waste. You want to make sure that the ecosystem is there. You want to make sure mm -hmm. that you have trees coming in in order to produce the shed that you need because trees also help you to bring up the water tables again, which all got lost and so on and so forth. Doing that sort of uh, regenerative work with farming communities is one of a very joyful and uh, uh, exercise to do. And it's not really difficult to pull off. Though, the larger the scale, the larger it's going to be. But uh, if you look at the cocoa industry, for example, for all the chocolate that is being consumed, mm -hmm. having smallholder farming communities in groups combined to about 30,000 is not unheard of. 
So it's absolutely doable. We have managed, my colleagues uh, and I have managed those sort of uh, projects before, and therefore it's doable. It is, um, I, granted, if you're not in the industry and if you don't know where to start, it looks a bit complicated, but right. at the end of the day, with a few years, a few decades of experience, you're right there at the starting point. So it's not a big challenge. Unfortunately, to be honest, because yeah, you're right. It, yeah, you framed it very the, well. The world right? would be a better place if it wouldn't. Right, right. If you did, it's funny because you actually, it's actually something that's like you wish you didn't have to build this company, almost, right? Like that's a, it's a weird thing. <laughs> How ironic is that, right? But um, you're right. How ironic is it? I wish I wouldn't have to build this company, but here we go. So I'll. Uh, I'll saying, what if food is made this way? Uh, I'll end on, on the last question, and usually it's about the future, and you know, hopefully, you know optimism and, and what the next sort of decade will bring, right? And and sort of, you know, what do you look like for the for the next decade? What would be success, right? For for what if foods? What would you like to see happen? And and what is sort of your your, your dream of of what what if could be and, and perhaps what it what it will be and, and what are some of the successes that you would like to see over the next decade? Okay, here you go. So the the realist in me clearly looks at the marketplace as one who has started about 30 years ago uh, with these um, functional foods that came about, you know, a little bit heart health here, a little bit uh, prebiotic there and whatnot. Then about um, 20 years ago, uh, 15 years ago, you saw really a vegan movement to come about, the first yep. plant-based product, Oatly, started on that move as well shout out to them but what we are seeing now is a is a strive towards regenerative agriculture we see it uh, the moment you open up you know for example in the united states uh, kiss the ground made a huge impact in community uh, the netflix documentary mm -hmm. uh, it portrayed and it showcased that you can actually grow food so differently by by going back to basics essentially so what we be firmly believe what i firmly believe is that we are seeing now I would say the third wave of agri-food and that being one of a regenerative nature. We take regenerative seriously because we don't want to just say that we are doing regenerative farming practices and that's the end of it. No, uh, we actually want to reconnect to farming communities directly so that we bring this meaningful life back. And we want to refuel the nutrients that our busy consumers need on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. So it needs to be this circular value system that drives our action. Uh, and this is what we stand for. If, if I'm right in my assessment that we are going to see this regenerative agri-food come about in the next uh, sort of decade, then where can it get us to is, of course, only known to someone who reflectively looks at us in from 2030 uh, or so to 2035. Uh, but here is my dream. My dream is to be able to produce these products on such large scale that even today's big agri-food can't take it away anymore. Mm. In other words, the moment we produce this sort of food products on such a scale that it becomes systematic, then we have taken out hundreds of thousands of hectares of land from its degradative state. That to me would, would be a definition of, of success. A definition of success would be if then these farming communities who are working on this land, if their if their next generation would say, hey, this is such a cool work that we are doing mm -hmm. here. It connects us so cool to Mother Nature and it gives me a meaningful livelihood and income. I want to stay. I don't want to move. That to me is mm -hmm. a definition of success. Amazing, Chris. Well, well, thank you so much. I always love talking to, to people outside my 
expertise because I get to learn so much. Uh, so I, I hope everybody learned uh, as much as I did as well. So uh, appreciate what you and the team are, are up to and, and best of luck the next, uh, you know, decade or so and trying to, you know, do sort of food 3.0, if you will, right, as, as we see science and technology really sort of start to impact and infiltrate our food, which is, you know, much needed, right? And the world should, a healthier world is, is a, is a pretty drastic change. We ha- it hasn't been that way for a while. Um, so I, sure. I, I'm sure it would, there would be so many uh, other positive elements that come out of having, you know, billions of people be, be much healthier. Appreciate your time, Chris. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.